So we're turning to Habakkuk chapter 3 uh, to read the Word of God, the book of Habakkuk chapter 3. I welcome you, welcome those online, and we pray that God will be with us as we meet around His own holy and precious Word. So the book of Habakkuk chapter 3, I'm going to read from this chapter as we come to the, the final view of this book. And may the Lord bless His Word to all of our hearts. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse number 1. I want to read the whole chapter just to get a, an overview of what the chapter says. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigeonoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known in wrath remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. And as brightness was as the light, He had horns coming out of His hand, and there was the hiding of His power. Before Him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at His feet. He stood and measured the earth, he beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered, the perpetual hills did bow, his ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers, was thine anger against the rivers, was thy wrath against the sea? that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation. Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation, thou didst thrash the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck." Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flocks shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he will make my feet like hinds' feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. 
Amen. And we know the Lord will bless the reading of this, His Word, to all of our hearts. Now, one of the outstanding features of the prophecy of Habakkuk is the way in which the prophet became so deeply involved, so deeply engrossed in what God revealed to him. As God's Word was brought to him, Habakkuk's heart was deeply moved, and many feelings and many emotions rose up within him, and they were displayed by him and what he wrote, what he had to say throughout this book. He was, of course, moved by the Holy Spirit, and yet his own emotions were fully charged and fully involved in what was coming forth. That's one of the evidences, actually, of the, the real nature of divine inspiration. It was not that God took a man and he was just like a, a robot, and his own feelings or his own uh, his whole being not involved in what he was doing. That's not the case. You find coming through over and over again the emotions and the feelings of the writers of Scripture, and that's an evidence of what inspiration really is. But in this book of Habakkuk, there are actually five emotions that broke forth from Habakkuk's soul. I just want to mention them at this stage in our study this morning before we look at the final part of the chapter I've read with you. And so if you turn back to chapter 1, we have the prophet lamenting, Habakkuk lamenting. That's in verses 1 through to 4. I haven't time to read these verses with you again, but we have looked at them already in the previous two studies. But that's the emotion of lament and sorrow that you find in verses 1 through to 4. Habakkuk is lamenting as it seemed to him that there was no answer from heaven as he prayed over the sin of his own people, as he was caused to see it by the Lord. The Lord showed him the sin of, of Judah. He was aware of the sin of his people, and it grieved him deeply, and he prayed about it, and he cried to God. And he's lamenting that seemingly no answer had actually come from the Lord, although it wasn't the Lord's time. That was the point. That was the situation. The Lord is going to show Habakkuk more and more as the book reveals. But at that point, he's lamenting. There is an emotion, and it's something that is real to Habakkuk. And the lamentation of God's people is, of course, something seen throughout the Word of God over and over again. We have, for example, the book of lamentations that Jeremiah wrote when Jerusalem was destroyed when it was carried away, the people were carried away. And that whole book is a, a lament, largely speaking, uh, of what happened in those days. And others throughout Scripture lift up their voices, their hearts, in lament, in mourning over sin, over what is happening. And, of course, that's an emotion, I believe, that many Christians have within their hearts today, uh, that feeling of lament over the state of the people, the state of the land, even our own hearts. You know, that's where it really begins, uh, lamenting over our own sin and over our own need before God. So there's the, the prophet lamenting. Then in chapter 1 again, uh, we have the prophet questioning. Uh, we looked at this in some detail, chapter 1, verses 12 through to 17. And what you have in those verses is the prophet questioning the the uh, fact that the Lord purposed to chasten Judah and Israel 
by means of the wicked nation of Babylon. And in Habakkuk's estimation, Babylon was much more wicked than the people of God, than Judah. And that, of course, was true to an extent. And therefore, he actually poured out his heart in protest, in questions, at the Lord actually taking a heathen nation like the Babylonians to chastise his own people. He couldn't understand that until, of course, God began to show him more and more of what he was doing. And therefore, we find the, the, the prophet questioning. The third emotion is that of the prophet watching. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. He watched for the Lord's answer, revealing, therefore, that he had prayed through the dilemma. When he says, I will stand upon my watch, and then he says, I will watch to see what he will say unto me, that means that he is now getting somewhere. And so he has lamented, he has questioned, and now he's watching, you'd even say waiting. And that is an emotion, that is a, a quality, a spiritual quality that's found in the heart of the true Christian. The believer watches, the believer waits, you could also put it that way, to see what the Lord will say, to see what the Lord is going to give in terms of an answer to the situation. So he waits, he watches submissively, he's looking for the Lord's answer. Then you come, you come to chapter 3, which we have just read. And in verse number 2, we have the prophet trembling. And here's the emotion of trembling at the majesty of the Lord. Look at verse 2. It says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. You see, I showed you that God answered uh, Habakkuk. He answered him as you find in chapter 1. He answered him as you find in chapter 2. And when these emotions came forth, his lament, his querying what the Lord was doing, his watching to find God's answer, the Lord answered him. And it caused Habakkuk's heart to tremble. And he says that there in verse 2, I have heard thy speech. That's what you have in chapter 2 especially, but really everything up to this point. I have heard thy speech, thy word is what it means, and was afraid. Why was he afraid? What was his fear? Because God was giving Habakkuk a revelation of his righteous judgment that he was going to bring upon Judah, first of all, by carrying them away into captivity, and then eventually his righteous judgment that he's going to bring upon Babylon, because that nation was judged. God took the Babylonians to deal with his own people. He had to have a nation so to speak, that was strong enough, powerful enough to overrun Judah, destroy the temple, uh, bring down the city of Jerusalem, carry the Jews away as all happened. There had to be a nation strong enough to do that, and the Babylonians were the ruling power in that day, so God used them. But when he had finished with them, then he just set them aside. Not only did he set them aside and replace Babylon with another empire, uh, namely the Medes and Persians, but he destroyed Babylon. And you will find passages in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and other scriptures that really underline how God dealt with the Babylonians 
and wiped them off the face of the earth at that particular time. And so, as Habakkuk saw all this, he says here, my heart trembled uh, there in verse number two. And that's why you have what you find from verse three right on through to verse number 16. Now, if you read those verses again, I read them with you earlier, but if you read them again, you will find that in them, this trembling in Habakkuk's heart is continuing, this emotion of, of being aware of the awful holiness of God, out of which there comes the justice of God and the wrath of God. And Habakkuk trembles at that. And you know, brethren and sisters, we should tremble always as we think about what God is able to do in the outworking of His holy justice among men in this world. It should cause our hearts to quake. And that's what you find down through these verses in chapter 3. And if you read them carefully, you will find that Habakkuk here, by inspiration, is going over different events in the history of of Israel. For example, in verse number 3, you're at Mount Sinai, really. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Then he brings in the sailor. Remember that word signifies a pause to think about what has just been said. His glory covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. Verse 5, before him went the pestilence. Burning coals went forth at his feet. And right down through these verses, there's event after event brought before us that were a display together, all of them, of the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God. And so Habakkuk, here is Habakkuk trembling. But then you come to the last three verses of the book, and now we have Habakkuk rejoicing. Habakkuk rejoicing. And so Habakkuk lamenting, questioning, watching, trembling, and now rejoicing. And those are all emotions that arise from his heart, feelings that over-flooded uh, his soul and caused this man to, to think deeply about what God was doing in those days and what a lesson, what a series of lessons we have as we go through this book, far more than I can show you in an overview kind of study. But today I want to come to you to the last part of the book just to sum up uh, really what is merely an introduction to the book in these uh, three studies that we've been spending on it. So the book closes with Habakkuk actually triumphing. And he's triumphing over his previous emotions because the prophecy closes in a note of real praise. And the joy that he expresses in these final three verses is the evidence that by God's grace he was unable to deal with the situation in which he found himself. And that teaches you and me that in the face of the most trying circumstances, there is always good ground for joy. There's always a place somewhere for rejoicing. And so, see it this way. He has all these emotions. They're very real. And yet, uh, in the back, against the background of the first four, he now comes to a mountain peak and he's able to rejoice before the Lord. Look with me at the essence of Habakkuk's joy. It's in verse 18. He says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now, 
That is stated against what you find in verse 17. Verse 17 says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. The fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. There shall be no herd in the stalls. He says, Although that's all coming, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 17 is a verse that describes total devastation. It's a verse that shows what was going to happen to Judah. Judah was going to be left bare and naked of all growth and all production of crops and, and all the labor of the people is just simply going to come to nothing. It's a scene of total desolation. That's what was coming upon Judah. And yet, though that were true, and it was true, here is something in which Habakkuk is able to rejoice. You know, verse 17 is a verse that describes what happens over and over again in the history of this world. As God has dealt with nations and dealt with peoples, He has sent famine, He has sent a desolation of different kinds, crops fail, and no harvester reaped, and everything is just uh, an utter failure. And of course, we have the, the common term today, the cost of living crisis. And I don't know how much truth there is in that, right? I don't see in our nation anybody really struggling too much. It's all hyped up by the press, may I say in passing. If they would cut out their drink and their smoking and their drugs, they wouldn't be facing uh, what they call a, a cost of living crisis. I just say that in passing. It really annoys me that people can, uh, can tell you look for money and yet they throw it all around them uh, in so many sinful and frivolous ways. But this is real, what you have in verse 17. This is what happened, Judah. But against that background, he says, yet I will rejoice. You see, men and women, there's one thing that never changes. There's one matter that will never become desolate, and that is the spiritual possession of the true child of God. And though all else fails, yet we're still always able to rejoice in the God of our salvation. Other verses in Scripture make this clear. I just want to show you one over in 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Verses 3 to 5 of 1 Peter 1 actually give a marvelous summary of our salvation. We, we will just quickly read through those verses. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's talking about our new birth. The God and Father of our Savior, by His abundant mercy, hath begotten us. That's the birth of the Christian into the family of God. And what is new birth in terms of what it leads to? It's a living hope. And so we have been born again with a living hope in Jesus Christ because he's alive from the dead. He paid the price, he rose from the dead. And therefore, we have the assurance, the seal that we're accepted by God. And yet it doesn't end there. He, he, he takes us back to our new birth in verse 3. Then he takes us forward 
to heaven in verse 4. That's her final destination, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And then it tells us this, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So in those verses, he's summarizing our salvation, our experience of God's grace. Then in verses 6 and 7, he, he writes about our trials. And he says this, for a season of need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. He writes about the trial of your faith in verse number 7, etc. Even though it's tried with fire and all that you have there. So what do you find in verses 6 and 7? Well, notice how verse 6 begins. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. And the word wherein takes you back into verses 3 and 5. And we just looked at those verses. That's a summary of our salvation. And so he says, you're rejoicing in your salvation. And just like Habakkuk, who said there in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's what Peter's doing here. He's saying to these Christians, wherein you greatly rejoice. But look at the next words. Though now for a season, and the word season means a little while, because trials do end sometime or other. Wherein you greatly rejoice to now for a season of need be, ye are in heaviness. They feel downcast, they feel oppressed, they feel within themselves this awful heaviness because of their sufferings for the sake of Christ. But he says you're still able to rejoice in your salvation. And so I could take you to other verses. There's no need to do that. Turning back to Habakkuk, because Habakkuk is rejoicing. And the essence of his joy that he has is this joy in the salvation of his God that God has given to him. Let us today think about that. We're able to rejoice in our salvation even though there's nothing else to rejoice in. Yes, total failure could come. We don't know what way things will go. If God in his providence allows the nation to keep on sinking and sinking and sinking. We have no idea of where it is going to take us. And things, therefore, could become much worse. We just do not know, but uh, that's all in the Lord's hands. But let me say, even in the position where everything is desolate, like verse 17 here, we're able to re-echo the words of Habakkuk in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. We can always rejoice in the plan of salvation. We should dwell in the plan of salvation. I think of what happened when Paul went to, on his first missionary journey, and he went to Antioch and Pisidia, and he preached the gospel there to Jew and Gentile. And, and we're told toward the end of that chapter, Acts 13, that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now, there's the plan of salvation. God has ordained a people to eternal life. You, as a Christian, need to get a hold of that and think in your mind today that in God's eternity, and that's the only way we can see this, because it's from all eternity, from all eternity, God ordained you 
to eternal life. And if that doesn't cause your heart to rejoice, I just don't know what will. That's the plan of salvation. That the Lord thought about you, that he set his love on you, that he uh, loved you so much with that pure, everlasting love that he then ordained that his own son would come to suffer for you, die for you, and, and, and thereby procure from you, for you all that you need to save your soul and one day finally bring you to everlasting glory. You see, there's no arrival in heaven for anybody but on the basis of God's electing purpose from all eternity. People don't like that. Christians don't like that. I don't understand them. They've been so filled with the garbage of Arminianism that they, that they reject the doctrine of election as it's, as it's revealed in the Word of God. But my dear friend, it's there. The Word's there. The doctrine's there. You cannot get around it. But I don't want to get around it. And you know why? Because I know that if I were left to myself, I would go to hell. Every man left himself will go to hell. So if anybody arrives in heaven, and of course there will be a great multitude that no man can number, here's the basis for it. God's plan of salvation. And when Habakkuk says, I will join the God of my salvation. Notice that, Christian. I will join in the God of my salvation. When Habakkuk thought about that, he said, here's one thing in which I can always rejoice, that God is my Savior, that He ordained me to be saved, etc. Because it says here, I will join in the God. Not merely, I will join in my salvation, but I will join in the God of my salvation. Because if there were no God, such as our God, there would be no salvation. We're always, we are always taken back to God. That's where it all begins. You see, salvation is the demonstration of divine love. You think of 1 John 4. Lovely verses there, verses 9 and 10. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, the question is, when did God begin to love me? And the answer is, there was no beginning to it. It's an eternal love. And out of that love, He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Salvation is the demonstration of divine wisdom. God devised a plan, as we're seeing here, the plan of salvation, in order to save men from their sins and yet not compromise his own holiness or adulterate his own justice. And that's why Christ is called the wisdom of God. And what that term means, that's 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Christ is the wisdom of God. What that means is Jesus Christ came taking our humanity, upholding the law, obeying it in every part, suffering under its penalty, rising from the dead as the sign and seal that the work was done, and thereby revealing God's wisdom with regard to our salvation. Because that whole work of Jesus Christ means that every jot and tittle of the law is fulfilled and satisfied in His work, which means, therefore, that God can save us 
without compromising his holy justice. You see, that has to happen. And we need to understand that there, there, there is no forgiveness of sin unless, first of all, sin is paid for. There's no mercy from God unless, first of all, God is satisfied in His justice. God does not, salvation is not the Lord simply saying, I forgive you, and that's all there is to it. Salvation, yes, does include God saying to sinners, your sins are forgiven, but on a certain basis. And that's the plan of salvation. And salvation, of course, is the demonstration of divine power, because as the Lord is satisfied uh, with Christ and His work, then He reaches and He snatches sinners from the jaws of death and from the very flames of hell that are about to engulf them, and He brings them home to glory. And so we can say today that we can rejoice in the plan of salvation. And we rejoice, of course, in the provision of salvation. I have been touching on that. It's provided through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there's why Habakkuk is rejoicing. He's rejoicing, and this is the essence of his rejoicing. He is rejoicing in the salvation of our God. That's where real joy is found. Look at the effect of Habakkuk's joy. And again, I bring you back to verse 18 and the first word of that verse, yet I will rejoice. As I showed you, verse 17 depicts a scene of economic and financial failure, but out of the joy that he had in God's salvation, Habakkuk is able to deal with what is on the way, what is coming. And there, my dear friend, is the effect of this joy that flows from knowing God and experiencing His salvation. It's the ability, then, to be able to deal with the most terrible circumstances. You know, whenever you meet a man or a woman, a child of God who has suffered a great, a great uh, blow, a time of deep trial, that person's a real Christian. Yes, there will be pain, there will be sorrow, and uh, because we're all only human in that sense, but in the midst of it all, there is a peace. There is a, an acceptance of what is going on, and that is the mark of a child of God. I know any of us can at times have rebellion in our hearts and even in our behavior, but by and large, the child of God surrenders to the Lord. That's exactly what Habakkuk was doing here. And that's the effect of true Christian joy. Joy in God's salvation. That's the essence of it. Rejoicing in God's salvation produces an ability to confront and deal with terrible circumstances. You see, the believer is able to deal with earthly trials in this way. That is out of the joy of salvation. Because the believer is rejoicing in that which is unchangeable. Verse 17 is really describing things that change. The things of time and sense, uh, even at the physical level. And uh, here the whole focus is on uh, trees and vines and olives and fields and flocks and herds and stalls. It's 
That, that, was the, that was the way of life in Judah. They were a farming community. They were a horticultural community. And that was their life. That's how they made their living. And therefore, here's Habakkuk actually describing a scene of absolute failure in verse 17. And you know, we should not be surprised that our earthly life should come into times of great distress because we do live in a world that is subject to change and decay. That's what verse 17 is really describing. It's describing change. And it's change that is detrimental. It's change that leaves the nation teetering and tottering and bankrupt just about. That's what's in view in verse 17. You see, the things of life, even lawful things, can change drastically. Why? Because we live in a mutable world. Now, God in His providence looks after His people. And as a nation endeavors to follow after God's Word and do as well, the Lord will provide. But when a nation turns away from God, as Judah did, it, it runs the risk, at least, of being forsaken by God altogether and everything collapsing. That's what that's what Habakkuk was describing there. We've seen this today. But as Habakkuk rejoiced in the God of his salvation, he rejoiced in someone who was immutable. And that meant that Habakkuk, or unchangeable, that meant that Habakkuk could endure in the face of the coming disaster. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 4 and look at a couple of verses there. And here's a remarkable statement that Paul makes. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now just pause with that verse before we go to verse 18. He refers here to our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now remember, this is very personal with Paul. Uh, he, he uses the plural, I know, the word our, as if he's writing here on behalf of every Christian, and in a sense he is. But at the same time, he's really writing about his own experience. If you go back there to verse number 8, notice what he says, we're troubled on every side, not yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. But in those verses, he actually refers to troubles, and distress, or, per, or being perplexed and persecuted and cast down. And if you have time sometime, even today, just to, when it's fresh in your mind, read Second Corinthians 11 from verse number 24 right down to the end of the chapter. And in that, that passage, Paul actually gives a full summary just about of all that he suffered and he talks on those verses from 2 Corinthians 11 uh, down from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. He talks in those verses about all that he had endured for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, you bring that back into chapter 4 here. And just go back, please, to chapter 4 and that verse number 17. And notice the term, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. That is written over all that you have in this chapter and all that you have in chapter 11. 
How did Paul regard it? Light. Only for a moment. But yet, from a human point of view, it wasn't light. It was heavy. It was terrible. And furthermore, it lasted all of Paul's converted life. From the moment he was saved until the moment he went to heaven, he never had peace. He was always facing challenges, always the object of the devil's attack. He was always being persecuted. He was always suffering physically. He wasn't a well man. He didn't have good health. You can see that coming out in many places. And he suffered all this. And yet he describes it as being something that's light and something that is only for a moment. Now, how was he able to do that? Was he a stoic? Had he no feelings? Did he treat life as if he were a superman and could override it all and just ride on in the chariot of life? No, not at all. Paul felt it. Paul felt it deeply. But how was he able to handle it? Well, that's what I've been showing you from Habakkuk. Habakkuk says there's going to be economic disaster. The whole nation will be stripped of its, of its livelihood. But he goes on to say, yet I will rejoice. Because he's rejoicing in something that doesn't change. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's feeding his soul on what is yet to be. Because he says in verse 17 at the end of the verse, he writes of this, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so he talks here about the visible. He says, we, while we look not at the things which are seen, there's the visible. Then he talks about the things that are temporal, a little farther on in that verse. So you've got the visible and the temporal. And that's what the world is always watching. They're always watching what's visible to them. What they see, whatever it might be, their houses, their lands, their bank accounts, their stock markets. I'm not saying that it's wrong or sinful even for a Christian to, to be careful with money or careful with your property or whatever. No, the Bible teaches the opposite. But when Paul talks here about looking at those things, what he means is he speaks there of people and that's all they look for and live for. But he says we don't. The Christian is not a person who's always looking at those things or shouldn't be. But the things which are eternal, the visible and the temporal, are going to pass away. They're going to be gone someday. But here's something that will never end. Here is the immutable, the unchanging blessings. The final outcome of our salvation is to be with the Lord in the glory that shall be hereafter. And that is something that nothing is able to change, can't take from us. And therefore, the, uh, this whole matter of the effect of, of true Christian joy is to view those things that are immutable and indeed to view those things that are invisible. Isn't that right? Because God is invisible and heaven is invisible and the glory is invisible. We don't see those things now. So how do we... How can we have joy if we can't see those things? Well, that's the whole point of, of true faith. True 
True Christianity is a religion of faith. And real faith is a supernatural quality that enables a person who is saved to have a a true apprehension and understanding of the invisible. The invisible God. The invisible glory. The invisible Christ. In the sense that we while he has a body, yet he's not visible to our eyes now, and he is not physically with us, and therefore we, everything that the Christian believes is really invisible. And yet we are enabled to rejoice in the invisible because of the gift of faith that the Lord has placed within our souls. Back there in First Peter, which I read from earlier, and you may know the, the words there after where I did read, in verse number 8, Paul, or Peter there uh, actually writes about uh, rejoicing in one whom we have never seen, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That is the, that's the, the, the wonderful nature of God's salvation. It brings into our hearts a true understanding, uh, a real apprehension of who the Lord is, the fact that though he's invisible to us, nonetheless real, he is there, he loves us, he's praying for us, and one day we will see him. And so when Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation, that's the effect of true Christian joy. It enables the child of God to rejoice in the immutable and the invisible, and therefore deal with the troubles and the trials of life. And then you go to verse number 19 as we close today, and here we have the expectation of Habakkuk's joy. We've looked at the essence of it. It's joy and salvation. We looked at the effect of it. It enables us. It affects us in this way that we're enabled to rejoice in the uh, immutable and invisible God and salvation that we have. But what about the expectation? Verse 19, the Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds' feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places. And there are three matters there I'll mention quickly about the expectation of Habakkuk's joy. He expected the God in whom he rejoiced to give him strength. For he says, the Lord God is my strength. And this is the wonderful thing, brethren and sisters. This is what we expect from the Lord in whom we rejoice, that He will give us strength, that He will come upon our souls and enable us to uh, deal with the challenges of life and rejoice in Him so much so that there's a consequent strengthening of the soul. You remember what Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so it is. Because we're rejoicing in someone, as we've seen, who, while he's invisible, he's unchangeable, and therefore we expect him to strengthen us. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Those great verses at the end of Isaiah 40. And so that's one matter here that we expect from uh, true Christian joy, that we can uh, look to the Lord to strengthen us. But then the second thing here in verse 19 is that we can look to the Lord to be swift 
in coming or swift in enabling us to fulfill our spiritual engagements. Just look at what verse 19 goes on to say. He will make my feet like hinds' feet. Now, the hind was a deer, and the deer or the hind, very swift animals in terms of running. And therefore, the thought here is of the believer swiftly doing the, the Lord's will, going about the Lord's ways, keeping his or her eyes on the race that is set before us. Therefore, make the Lord your joy always, and he will strengthen you, and he will give you a swiftness, a spiritual swiftness to run in his ways, and to walk in his paths, and to follow after him. He will make your feet like hinds' feet. And it's a metaphor, of course, of figure of speech, uh, not literally to be understood, but the fact that that animal is swift and runs swiftly, and therefore, as we rejoice in the Lord, we can run swiftly with Him. I think I've told you before about Nicholson, a man in a prayer meeting one night when W.P. Nicholson was alive and ministering in this little province many, many years ago. And in the prayer meeting, a man prayed, and he said, he's quoting this verse, but he got it wrong. He says, Lord, make my feet like hen's feet. And Mr. Nicholson shouted out in the middle of the prayer meeting, uh, Amen, brother, you'll never backslide because a, a hen doesn't walk backwards. So uh, that was his thought. And that's true. Have you ever seen a hen walking backwards? Never. They keep going forwards. So uh, I know it's funny, but it's, it's a little humor that uh, Nicholson had, and he was well known for that. And so it's hind's feet, not hen's feet. So uh, always endeavor to be like a hind and run swiftly for the Lord. There's a third thing there. Look at the end of the verse. He will make me to walk upon mine high places. That is the believer being uh, strengthened and swift for God and overcoming his enemies. He will make me to walk upon mine high places. Rising up is the thought there. And being elevated in your mind and in your heart and and running after the Lord, and knowing out of the joy of the Lord this tremendous experience of being raised above your difficulties and your challenges in life, and able to, uh, to feel within your soul the elevating power of the Holy Ghost, lifting you up, carrying you forward. So we'll leave it there today. Our time is gone, and I trust the Lord will bless you and, and make us all a joyful people more and more. And that will come as we feed our souls upon our God, upon what we have in salvation. And thereby we will know all the outcome and all the effects of this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask thee today to bless thy word and write it in our hearts. And may we know thy help and presence as we go through this day and we serve thee. And we pray, Lord, that thou wilt fill us with grace and with power and with blessing and Make us a joyful people, joyful in our God. And Lord, may we know thy blessing and thy presence as we serve thee and we live for thee. And through the days ahead into another year in thy will, may we be like Habakkuk as he expressed himself in these closing verses. Be with us now and help us, we ask, in Jesus' name, as we go over to pray and enter into the morning worship time. May thy hand be upon us for good. We pray this in Jesus' name.